Last Sunday, we began this new series on being disciple makers. And we looked at the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, He's been crowned the King of His kingdom. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we noted that in that Great Commission, that there is actually one imperative and three participles, one command. And the command is actually not to go. The command is that as we are going, we are to make disciples. And the three participles tell us how to do that. As we are going about the everyday aspects of our lives, we're to make, be making disciples by baptizing and teaching. I had somebody ask me, call me one day and said, hey, I have been witnessing to this person about uh, Jesus and, and they want to become a Christian. And uh, we're already here at the river. Is it okay if I baptize them? And I said, absolutely. Do it now. Do it while it's, the excitement is there. There's nothing that says it has to be a preacher or a leader of the church to do the baptizing. In fact, I, I think personally on the day of Pentecost for them to baptize 3,000 people, as they were baptizing some of the new converts were probably even baptizing some of the rest. Uh, just you know, making sure that we understood that we're burying that old self to rise to walk as a new person in Christ. Uh, it needs to be a part of our daily prayers as well as our practice. And so I gave you that copy of the Disciple Maker's Prayer. And that prayer begins like this. Heavenly Father, thank You for giving me a disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. Not a program. Years ago. And you might have even done it here. Uh, James Kennedy had this program that he had worked uh, called Evangelism Explosion. And it was published into books and spread out. A lot of churches utilized it. Uh, but disciple making is really not a program. It's a way of life. As I go through every part of this day, Dwayne shared with me that the go-kart races are going on in Goodland. Uh, what a better way to meet somebody and strike up a conversation and share the message of Jesus Christ. Uh, as I go through every part of this day, help me to love you and to love the people who cross my path. Love you, the vertical dimension. Love the people that cross my path, the horizontal dimension. Living out the cross right there in front of them. Starting with my family. Starting with my family. And notice especially this, this whole second sentence. I mean, I gave you a definition of discipleship that was in a little booklet that I have called the Gospel Message in the Early Church. Discipleship, that writer says, could be defined as becoming and being. In other words, 
There is no point at which you all of a sudden have it done. We are constantly becoming. Becoming and being a flourishing follower of Jesus who embodies the character of Christ by engaging in a lifelong personal pursuit of holistic transformation. This is what Eric's going to be a part of. Helping people to make this lifetime pursuit of spiritual formation and growth. And doing so within a like-minded community of faith, that's the church, that's who we are, that's corporately committed to being and making other disciples. That needs to be our number one focus. Growing in Christ as disciples, but also reaching out and making other disciples. And the idea of discipleship can be summed up with one biblical key word. Imitation. To be a disciple in Jesus' day, uh, to be following a rabbi, a teacher, uh, it wasn't merely to master the rabbi's teaching. It was to master their way of life. How he prayed, how he studied, how he taught. I mean, if you remember, when the, Jesus gave the disciples the Lord's Prayer, it was they were watching him pray and they said, teach us to pray. They were watching John's disciples pray and they were saying, teach us to pray. You see, how he served the poor. How he lived out his relationship with God day to day. Jesus himself said that when his disciples fully trained, he becomes like his teacher. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. And I shared with you how when St. Paul formed disciples, he exhorted them not to just remember his teaching, but also to follow his way of living. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And he exhorted them to lead others in the same way. 2 Timothy 2, he tells Timothy, to be out there making disciples, living a life that others can follow. We do the world a disservice. We do people who are seeking and interested a disservice when we proclaim something that all they have to do is, oh, if you're convicted, take that track that you have there, turn it over and sign the last page saying you believe that Jesus is the Christ. No. It's not just about conversion. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if He is not the Lord of your life. It has to be a 24-7, 365 thing. A way of life. Being a follower. An imitator. And the word that the Bible uses for disciple is mathetes. Like Matthew, mathetes. Which means a learner. But biblical discipleship is very different from the kind of study that we are familiar with. We're familiar with lecture halls, with professors teaching and students taking notes and then being ready for tests. Or like in my case, uh, 
which I was going to talk about later, but I'll jump it in here now. Uh, I've got a class that I'm going to go to in August uh, one day, August the 12th. And in preparation for that class, I have five books that I have to read and five papers to write. And then we're going to sit there that day and basically orally examine one another as we discuss the material that we are looking at and, and studying. Uh, much different than discipleship in the, in the day of Jesus. Not just mastering material, uh, but watching, seeking. And so here's the image. I, I've, I've kind of gotten into this and I love doing this. Here's the image that I want you to put into your mind today. Learning from a rabbi was very different. To follow a rabbi meant living with the rabbi. And Jesus was believed to be a rabbi. Didn't people say, Rabbi? Rabboni? A disciple might accompany a rabbi on their daily routines, as I said. No matter what they were doing. Their life, the life of the rabbi, was meant to be a living example of someone shaped by God's Word. Therefore, they studied not just the text of Scripture, but also the text of the rabbi's life. And the ancient Jews had a saying that captures this idea of discipleship that was very much present in Jesus' day. One of the very first century rabbis uh, actually preceded Jesus by some time uh, said that what you needed to do as a young person was to find a good rabbi and then you should be covered in the dust of the rabbi and drink in his words thirstily. The expression probably draws on what was a well-known sight for them. Disciples were known for walking behind their rabbi. There's even a passage in the New Testament where it says the disciples were following Jesus and they were in awe and fear as He was leading them to Jerusalem knowing what He was heading for. He had already told them, I'm going to Jerusalem so I can die. And they're following Him behind Him and sometimes following so closely that they could easily be covered with the dust that He would kick up from His sandals. A powerful image. A powerful image that should have also be a part of our life in terms of our spirituality. And this is why Jesus didn't simply invite His disciples to listen to His preaching in the synagogues. What did He say to them? Come, follow Me. Come, follow Me. Basically, inviting them on a three-year camping trip as they traveled around from village to village with no place to stay, preaching the kingdom of the gospel. And as, as I shared with you last week, a biblical pattern from the Apostle John's letters, a pattern for discipleship, and that is we're to walk in the same way in which He, that is Jesus, walked. So those little things that some of us have on our keychains are really not that superficial. 
What would Jesus do? An excellent reminder when we have a question as to how should we respond? Well, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond to this situation? Today, I want to hone in a little bit more on what it means to be in discipleship. And I want to do it by what is truly the Lord's Prayer. Not a model prayer that He gave to us, but a prayer that He prayed shortly before His arrest and His crucifixion. A prayer that's often identified as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In fact, William Temple described it as perhaps the most sacred passage in the four Gospels. It's found in John's Gospel, chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Throughout John's Gospel, starting from the very first miracle, the changing of the water into wine, what did He say to His mother? My hour has not yet come. All the way through John's Gospel, my hour has not come. Father, glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. Now, they know everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave Me. And they've received them. And they've come to know in truth that I came from You. And they have believed that You sent Me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All mine are Yours, and Yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. And they're no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Skipping down to verse 14. I have given them your word. And the word has world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for your sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word this morning. Jesus' prayer. And I'm sure that John wasn't sitting there with pen and paper writing every single word down as Jesus was praying. Later, with the aid and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he remembers his prayer. 
remembers it because of the timeliness of it, the location of it, the time alone with the Lord. And yes, as we dig into this text, Jesus' commission does involve being sent. But it's a, not a command to go. It's a command that as we are going, we are to be making disciples. And although the world is a threatening place for true disciples, where Jesus says we will be hated and persecuted, Jesus doesn't want His disciples removed from the world. I have a very dear friend uh, that I met while ministering at Martinton who is still in China. His life is in danger every single day. My friend Luis Alberto Rodriguez in Cuba said, have your people pray for me night and day. In Africa, people every day, every day, going to their death because they're not afraid to witness to the truth. And yet we shy back and say, oh, maybe I shouldn't say anything. I might offend somebody. I might lose tax benefits. All kinds of things that get said. Worried about what persecution might come if we do what we know we should be doing. Speaking out for the truth. A major reason why we are to remain in the world is because Jesus has a purpose for us here. The importance of our mission as disciples. The importance of our mission as the whole church cannot be overstated. Jesus was getting ready to depart from the world. Therefore, as His disciples, He was telling them, I'm not going to be in the world, so you need to be in the world. The parallel is crucial. The entire mission of Jesus in the world has, in reality, been the mission of the Father in and through Him. That's what He kept saying. I'm not speaking my words. I'm speaking the words of the Father. I'm here to do the Father's will. Jesus was here on earth to do what Israel was not able to do as a nation. And so He embodies the mission that Israel was supposed to have had and failed. So the mission of you and I, the mission of the disciples, is to be sent by the Son into the world. And likewise, it's not our mission but it's Jesus' mission being worked out through us. It's a continuation of the ministry of our Lord. 
what's one of the things that the church is called? What's one of the images? The bride. The bride. Okay? What's another one? The body. The body of what? The body of Christ. That's the bride. If the husband is the husband that the husband is supposed to be. Let me start with that caveat. As the bride, what is our responsibility? To come alongside and to support and to encourage and to fulfill along with the ministry of the man, Christ, the, the husband, the church, the bride. As the body. Let me throw a big theological word. One of my professor clients, Mike Mark refers to him as sometimes. Incarnation. Incarnation. You know what that word means? It means in the flesh. Becoming flesh. We speak of Jesus as being the incarnation of God the Father. In the flesh. And if we are the body of Christ, guess what? We are to be the incarnation of Christ now in His absence so that the world can have His continuing presence among them through us. So here's my first question. As we are going into the world, are we making disciples? Or are we just that religious social club that exists down there a block south of Main Street? Again, the question might be asked, how if we're making disciples? And Jesus includes that information in His prayer. He points to the knowledge that we are given in verses 7 and 8. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verses 7 and 8 describe their knowledge. And despite the many limitations of their understandings, I mean, more than once Jesus said, and I can almost see him shaking his head. One time he actually uses the word, how much longer? Disappointment at times. And despite those many limitations of their understanding, one thing is, is they did grasp the fundamental truth that Jesus can be understood and explained only in terms of the Father. Their certainty about Jesus came through accepting His words. Other grounds, historical, philosophical, or ethical, those can be presented for producing uh, or assisting in assured conviction about Jesus. But the surest and most common way is reading, studying, and trusting His words. The Bible. And I can't say it often enough. 
We need to be students of God's Word. It's far more important that we know His Word far more valuable to us than any other knowledge that we can obtain. Let me give you an example. I had a very close friend. In fact, he made my head swell one day. He was a little kid growing up the, down the street from us, and he later became a police officer while I was on the police department. And he came to me and he said, I have something for you. I don't know if you want it or not. And he had a bag. And he reached in the bag and he pulled out one of my old football practice jerseys that I had given to him when he was a little kid down the street. And he still had it. He left our police department and he went with the FBI for a while. I verified what he told me, by the way, with my little sister's husband, who is now a retired FBI agent. Do you know how the FBI teaches their agents to recognize counterfeit money? They don't show them a single piece of counterfeit money. Because they don't want them to think all counterfeit money is going to look like that. They teach them and train them specific things to look for on real money so that they can know what real money is. And if they know what real money is, they will immediately recognize when something's not real. I hope this doesn't disappoint you as a congregation to know this about me as your minister. But I haven't studied any other world religions. I have spent my time focusing on studying what is what Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life, that no man can come to the Father without knowing. He's given us this Bible, and it's really not too much of an expectation. Uh, this is what I was going to tell you about those five books that I have to read and five articles that I have to write. Far more reading material than the pages of my Bible. And I promise you, when I go down there on August 12th, if I don't know what those five books say, I'm not going to pass the course. More pages than in the pages of my Bible. So, why is it that some people say, well, man, that's too much. I can't read and know all that. I'll tell you what. You get to know it more and more each time you read it. Jesse and I are going through the Bible for our third time together. Uh, when you look at my Bible at some point, if you take it and you go to the end of a book, like I'll just flash through here. Let's see, there's the end of Ezekiel, which by the way we're reading right now and about to finish again. At the end, down here in the corner are dates. September the 14th, 2021. June the 19th of 2019. December the 23rd of 2019. 
Those are each of the times that I've read through the book of Ezekiel. I, I just do that as reminders to myself. We need to be reading and studying and knowing God's Word. Finally, a very important part of our mission and a part of the prayer of Jesus is that we be one. That we are not taken out of the world, but protected from the evil one. Verses 11 and 15 there in chapter 17. Jesus' relationship to His original 12 disciples was about to change in a fundamental way. He no longer would remain in the world with them, but they would still be living in the world. I can't imagine. I can't imagine how much the departure of Jesus, especially the way it happened, I can't imagine how much of a crisis that was for those disciples. And that's why what I believe prompted this prayer of Jesus on the night in which He was arrested and betrayed. For them to hear Him praying. For them to be united. In fact, in verse 11 and again in verses 20 to 21, He prays not only for the twelve, but for those who believe in Me through their word. That's us. We're the ones who believe because of their words recorded. For those who believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, listen to this, <laughs> just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us. Now, I don't even understand the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three that are one. And now, somehow I'm supposed to understand that Jesus wants me to be a part of that intimate relationship too. That they also may be in us, listen, so that the world may believe that You have sent me. Now we're going to go into this in more detail in a few weeks. But we make it harder for our families, our friends, our neighbors to believe when we are constantly fighting amongst ourselves, not united. Somebody asked N.T. Wright this week on something I was watching. Somebody asked N.T. Wright, what do you think would be the reaction of the Apostle Paul if he came back today and saw the church. And he said, I think Paul would be appalled at the division of the church. But even more so, I think he would be appalled at how the church doesn't seem to be concerned about the division. Constantly fighting among ourselves. Putting people down. Talking negatively about people. Gossiping. I'll tell you what. My dad said it. And I came to believe it. And I've witnessed it. There is more unholy gossip going on in the name of prayer requests than almost any other way. Hey, Rich, did you hear about so-and-so? 
They blah, 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 blah. Oh, and we need to be praying for them. <laughs> what a heresy. What a sacrilege to what it means to pray for one another. Jesus prays also, secondly, that we're not to cloister out of the world, but to remain in the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. A couple of the kids this week, as camp was ending on Friday, tears. I don't want to go home. I want to stay here. We get that every year at the end of high school week. I don't want to go back. It's so much easier to live the Christian faith here. Yeah. But we're not called to be apart from the world. Jesus also prayed that they be protected. Verse 11 and 12 and verse 15. And this is necessary because there's actually, we face two very formidable foes. The first is the world, which has hated them. He says that back in chapter 15 as well. The world's antagonism to Jesus and the disciples derives from the world's correct perception that as true disciples, we don't belong to the world. We're citizens of a different kingdom. And as a result, the world passes judgment on us. But the second foe also has been hinted at previously, and that is, verse 15, the devil. Jesus states His conquest of the devil at several points throughout John's Gospel. But He never dismisses the opposition. He never lessens the severity of the spiritual battle that you and I are going through that He went through right up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Satan was still working there in the garden, tempting him to take a different route than the route of the cross. In fact, if you go back and read the original temptation, you'll find out that it says, and Satan left him for a better opportunity. Another opportunity. And I think it was the garden when he was knowing that the pain that he was going to go through on our behalf. Let me repeat this for emphasis. Our mission as the church is nothing other than the continuation of the mission of our Lord. Jesus is the incarnation, God coming in the flesh, and as the body of Christ, we are to be the body of Christ going out into the world still. Being sent, meant for Jesus, is other, other dedication to the claim and call of the Father. And our commission as His disciples can mean nothing less. So here's my challenge for this morning. Jesus' prayer is finally sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify. It, it means the same basically as to be holy. It comes from a Hebrew word meaning separate. Earlier, Jesus had prayed to God as Holy Father. 
And it's the Father's holiness that's the basis of Jesus' mission. Jesus now desires, Jesus now prays for that holiness. He prays that separation from sin and dedication to the way of righteousness will be a major characteristic of focus for His disciples. We're called to be holy. Peter says, Be holy. The Lord said, Be holy as I am holy. Separate in terms of the quality of our life. Not our geographical location. Distinct from the world. Though still living in the world. I think I've shared this with you before, but I remember Scott Archie, a man that I truly looked up to as, as one of the most sincere, devout Christians, one of the most intelligent Christians that I have ever known. Ranks right up there with my dear friend Bob Lowry in terms of intelligence. And Scott Barchi one day said with tears coming down his face, when I examine myself, I find that I am more defined by the world in which I live in than I am by the Word of God. You see, our mission is that of light confronting darkness. And it doesn't take much light, does it? If you're in a totally dark place, and somebody turns on an itty bitty little flashlight and holds it up, even though it doesn't light up that whole area, can't you all see the light? Yeah. And as the tools, the instruments used in the spiritual battle, we're to be in darkness. We'll read that back in chapter 8, verse 12. One of the most common accusations against Christians, sadly, it's a very, very true indictment is that we are, by and large, a bunch of hypocrites. Saying one thing, but living in a totally different way. Jesus' prayer for us, the last words of His prayer before He was arrested and went on to meet His destiny, the cross. His last words for you and I to be sanctified. And interestingly, that's how Paul would begin his letter to the Romans. We're to be set apart for the Gospel of God. Let's pray. Father God, help us to realize that the prayer of Your Son as He has called us to be disciples and make disciples is to be living right there in the middle of all of the muck and the mire, but doing it without being a part of the muck and the mire. Being different, being separated, being an example, being a light, knowing the Word, and being set free by the Word. Now help us as we strive 
to be in the world and not of the world, protected from the arrows of the devil by that great armor that Paul so clearly writes about. The breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the feet shot with the Gospel, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit in our hands. Help us to be ready and suited with the armor of God to do battle for Your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn